If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. The first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. And if you are able, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves. On the earth, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. This God, this is your word. The very word of God. The God who is three times holy. God who is set apart from all creation. The God who is transcendently other. God, you are holy. And your word is holy. It is set apart from any other word that exists in the universe. And God, I pray this morning that your word would be the most prominent voice in our ears, our hearts, and our minds. God, come and make your presence known. God, I pray, God, I pray desperately right now that you would speak in such a way that we would know, God, that this is your word. Spirit of God, we need you. We cannot see apart from your enablement. We cannot comprehend apart from your divine help. And so, Lord, we open ourselves to you right now. And we ask, God, that you would do your transformative work. Far beyond, God, what I as a human am capable of doing. God, we recognize that we are not alone in this room. That there are spiritual forces at play right now, even as we pray. That there are spiritual forces of darkness that is seeking to thwart the proclamation and the efficacy of your word. And so we rebuke and we bind every evil spirit. And we command you in the name of Jesus to leave. And you will obey on the authority that is ours in Christ. So King Jesus, come and reign over us. Reign over our hearts and our minds. God, reign over your church. In your name we pray. Amen. There's a revolution taking place today that has taken the world by storm. It is a cultural revolution that is upending millennia-old assumptions and traditions of what it means to be a man or a woman. 
human sexuality as we have understood it from the beginning of time is being challenged and redefined at warp speed. And what has been a topic that barely registered on most people's radars just a few years ago has become the most prominent social justice issue of our day. I'm talking, of course, about transgenderism. The transgender debate has become all-encompassing, touching practically every sphere of society. A day doesn't go by, a day does not pass without transgender issues hitting the news. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. You can't avoid it even if you tried. Many of you by now have heard of Leah Thomas, a biological male who competed for three years on the men's swim team at the University of Pennsylvania and was ranked 462 as a male swimmer, but shot up to number one after being allowed to join the women's team as a trans woman. Thomas has recorded the fastest times in women's college swimming in the 200 and 500 freestyle and won the 1650-meter freestyle event by nearly 40 seconds, breaking a total of six records at the Ivy League championships in 2022, all of which has sparked a fierce debate about fairness and equity how allowing biological males to compete against and dominate biological females ignores the physical advantages and disadvantages that exist between the two sexes. But this impact is not only felt in sports. The National Education Association, the NEA, which is the largest labor union in, in our nation, representing over 3 million public school teachers, last Monday put out their recommended summer reading list, which includes the book Gender Queer by Maya Kovabi, a book that in part chronicles the author's journey of self-discovery toward identifying outside the gender binary. But it's not just education. Lawmakers in Maine in May, just two months ago, approved legislation that would allow 16 and 17-year-olds to undergo hormone therapy for gender transition without the consent of their parents. The same month, the state of Washington passed a bill that stipulates shelters and host homes are not required to contact their parents if a runaway child is seeking gender, transgender procedures. The National Institute of Health just last month agreed to spend more than $3 million in taxpayer funds to expand access to sex change operations for minors. USA Today just named Minnesota State Representative Lee Finke a trans woman as woman of the year despite serving in office for less than three months. This comes on the heels of having Rachel Levine, the Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services, as one of its Women of the Year in 2022. U.S. citizens applying for a passport can now select a gender X on their application, in addition to the previous available F and M options. At one point, Facebook allowed for over 71 gender identities and now has an option of a custom gender. The latest cause among celebrities, as you may have heard, is gender neutrality, where parents are, quote, breaking away from the gender binary and exposing children to a variety of gender types and not allowing them to explore, end quote. Angelina Jolie herself said, you don't know who your children are until they show you who they are. You may have heard about Disney. How internal videos showed Latoya Ravino, executive producer of Disney television animation, boasting that she is adding queerness wherever she can. And Vivian Weirds, diversity and inclusion manager, saying the company has removed all of the gender greetings at its theme parks. So no more ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages. It now supposedly says dreamers 
of all ages. The transgender issue is everywhere. And it comes with massive implications. A bill just passed in Michigan that could make it a felony to use the wrong pronoun. HB 4474 states that causing someone to feel threatened by intentionally using the wrong gender pronouns is punishable by imprisonment for not for not more than five years or by a fine of not more than $10,000. In January of this year, St. Philip's College in San Antonio fired biology professor John Markey, Johnson Markey, for teaching his students that sex was determined by the X and Y chromosomes, even though he has taught that at the school for the past 22 years. The school deemed that his teaching was religious in nature. I'm going to say it again. Gender ideology issue is everywhere. And it is tearing down centuries-old norms at breakneck speed. What was seen as conventional wisdom, objective reality just a few short years ago no longer is. And we as believers need to know how to think rightly about this. Because let me tell you, the winds of change are blowing in the church. According to Pew Research Center, one out of four evangelical Christians in 2022, this is last year, one out of four Christians believe that a person's gender is not necessarily determined by the sex they are assigned at birth. One out of four professing Christians. The winds of change are definitely blowing in the church. And perhaps the biggest contributor to our changing view is the fact that a third of all professing Christians, 34%, say they personally know someone who is transgender or has gender identity issues. So this is personal for many in the church. This is personal for many of us. Some of you know people who are transgender or struggle with gender dysphoria. They are our friends, our family members. They are our coworkers and neighbors. They may be our own sons and daughters. Or they may be you. There may be some listening right now who struggle with gender identity and it's tearing you up inside. And you feel like you have no one you can talk to, not even your family. Because you've heard one too many stories of parents who have disowned or cut off their children when they came out as trans. And that breaks my heart. At a time when they needed the unconditional love of a parent, they were met with rejection, and it is often done in the name of Christ. But what greater way to misrepresent our Savior than to distance ourselves from the hurting and the broken? Because let me tell you, Jesus debated issues. He debated them all right. And he always spoke the truth. Always. But even more than that, he loved people. All kinds of people. In fact, the very people that the religious folk wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole were drawn to him. I'm talking about the outcasts and the misfits, the undesirables, people that, have, that didn't fit in anywhere, people who made a mess of their lives. They wanted to be around them. Why? Because they knew that this man loved them. And he treated them with dignity and respect. And we can't forget that as we talk about gender identity issues. Because a dangerous trend that I'm seeing in the church with a lot of believers is an outright militant rejection of all things trans. Many in the church today couldn't care less about actual trans people. 
All that matters to them is disproving gender ideologies as illogical and unscientific. And they live vicariously through their favorite political pundit who's constantly bashing them. And far too many of us in the church fall in that category. It is a fear-based attitude that often leads to disparaging stereotypes, prejudices, even cruel mistreatment. And I'm here to tell you that that has no place in the church. No place. Listen, it is wrong to write people off because they sin in ways that offend you. Andrew T. Walker in his book, God and the Transgender Debate, it's a great book. And he writes for the Gospel Coalition. This is what he says. At its heart, this debate isn't about a debate. It's about people. Precious people made in the image of God who are hurting, who are confused, who are angry, who are scared, who may have been told by their families that they are unwelcome. Now, what would Jesus do? He would listen to us. And he would love us. And when he disagreed with us, it would, it would always be out of compassion, never oppression. There's no hurting person that he would mock or shun or insult or sneer at. He is so determined to pursue what is best for us that he died to secure it. God, help us be like Jesus. Listen, the transgender person is made in the image of God. And nothing they do, nothing, nothing they do, nothing they cut or attach to their bodies can eradicate that image. And that means, that means they possess God-given dignity. And we are to treat them as such whether we agree with their self-perception or not. That means we reject any kind of joking or mocking humor that demeans them. It also means that we stand up and defend them against any kind of bullying or abuse of any kind. If there's one place in the world, listen. If there's one place in the world where they feel seen and heard and loved, it has got to be the church of Jesus Christ. With that said, another dangerous trend that I'm seeing in the church, guys, is swinging the pendulum too far in the opposite direction. Where we fail to think critically and biblically about this. I'm talking about Christians who say, I'm just going to love people, period. I don't need to bother with all that theological societal stuff. I'm just going to love them. But here's the problem with that. The Bible says when you love people... You tell them the truth, even when it's hard. In a day like ours where empathy is king, we need to remember that compassion without critical thinking can lead to greater damage. It can move us to do things that make a person feel good in the short run but cause harm in the long run. And let me say this. Disagreement and disapproval does not equal hatred. I repeat, disagreement and disapproval does not equal hatred. The current debate on gender identity is divided into the same camps as the homosexuality issue. Those who support it and those who hate it. So if you don't embrace and affirm transgenderism, then you hate them. But that simply is not true. That's not true. No one who shares my vision of God and his kingdom hates trans people. No, we love them to not collapse under societal pressure. And we love them enough to tell them the truth, God's truth. You see, it's possible to simultaneously say, no, this isn't right, and I love you. Which is exactly what God has spoken to us. Now, I'm fully aware that I'm speaking to a divided room. I am fully aware of that. I do not presume everyone in this room is a Christian, nor do I presume that every professing Christian believes the same about this issue. Truth is, there are many in the church who believe that people can choose their own gender. It's their prerogative. What's the problem? 
If that's you, I want you to know that whether you agree with me or not, I respect you. I really do. And I respect your need to think through this issue for yourself. All I ask is that you just, that you just weigh carefully what I have to say today from God's word. That's all I ask. And I want to say to you that living way is not about one party or one type of person. Guys, I hope we have shown, for those of you that have been here for a while, I hope we have shown that we care about a host of issues. A host of issues across the political and societal spectrum to the extent that the Bible speaks to those issues. From abortion to race to sexuality, all of these were biblical issues way before they were political issues. And we at Living Way are a church that comes together under the banner of God's word, not political ideology. So I want to make that clear. With that said, let's begin by defining some key terms in the transgender conversation, namely sex and gender. Sex and gender. These are the two most important concepts in this issue. Everything, everything flows from these two terms. So it's important that we understand what's meant by them, starting with sex. Now, humans, like most mammals, are sexually dimorphic. And what that means is that we reproduce when the sperm of one kind of human comes together with the egg of another kind of human to produce an entirely new organism. And the categories used to classify these respective roles in reproduction are male and female. Now, females are distinguished from males in that they have different reproductive structures, meaning they have different internal organs and external anatomies. So females have ovaries, a uterus, vagina, breasts, while males have penises and testes. Males and females also have different levels of hormones, different kinds of hormones that contribute to their dimorphism. So females have higher rates or higher levels of estrogen, and males have higher levels of testosterone. And this is what leads to the development of breasts and wider hips in women, and facial hair and greater muscle mass in males. Now, males and females differ even down to the genetic level. Males have X or XY chromosomes, and females have XX chromosomes. Now, there's a very small percentage of the population that is either missing an X chromosome or have two, three extra X chromosomes, and this is what we call intersex. But the vast majority of the human population, 99%, are either biologically male or biologically female. It's one or the other. And all of this, guys, is basic science. You can find this in any biology textbook. This has nothing to do with political ideology or leaning. Whether you're conservative or liberal, this has nothing to do with it. This is widely accepted by virtually every scholar and scientist today. That's sex. Now we come to gender. What do we mean when we use the term gender? Well, there was a time when sex and gender were synonymous because gender was connected to sex. So if you were biologically male, your gender was male. If you were biologically female, your gender was female. But everything changed in the late 1960s. And since the early 70s, gender was viewed as related but somewhat separate from our biological sex. So sex and gender were used to describe different aspects of our male and female experience. And the way gender is defined today is the psychological, social, and cultural aspect of being male and female. This is the most basic and widely agreed upon definition today. The psychological, social, and cultural aspect of being male or female. And under this definition, there are two subcategories. Gender role and gender identity. Now, gender role deals with the social and cultural aspects of being male or female. 
And this has to do with how males and females are expected to act in a given culture. And these expectations are formed when the majority of that group act a certain way. So gender roles are largely based on what? Stereotypes. And this isn't a bad thing. Not all stereotypes are bad. All they do is describe how the majority, how men and women typically act. Okay? And some of this is based in nature. And how males and females are just made different. For example, males have higher levels of testosterone, which is linked to higher degrees of physical aggression. And this is why boys in general prefer rough and tumble playing over sitting in a circle and chatting with friends, right? But nature isn't the only factor. Nurture plays a huge role. For example, if I asked you, is pink a boy color or a girl color, what would you say? A girl color, right? We associate pink with girls because pink is a feminine color. Did you know that a hundred years ago, pink was considered masculine and blue feminine? Listen to what was written in Ladies Home Journal in 1918. Pink, being a more decided and stronger color, is more suitable for the boy. While blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. So boys in those days wore pink, and girls wore blue. Now today, it's the complete opposite. Boys wear blue, girls wear pink. Not because boys are genetically, genetically hardwired to like blue and girls genetically hardwired to like pink. But because we in our culture have associated blue with maleness and pink with femaleness. So that's gender role, okay? And there's so much more I want to say about this because much of our gender stereotypes today come from culture, not the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about gender roles as it relates to men's and women's roles in the home and in the church. That's clear, and we don't bend on that. I'm talking about stereotypes of what it means to be masculine or feminine that go beyond biblical expectations of how men and women are to act. Let me give you an example of this. In the Greco-Roman world, men were expected to be sexually charged and domineering. That's what it meant to be a man in that culture. Any man who cried in public or showed affection toward women, abstained from sex outside of marriage or honored the poor, the marginalized, and children were not considered to be real men. Enter Jesus. Jesus didn't just flip over tables. He didn't just speak truth to power. He wept in public. He was vulnerable before others. He showed compassion to women. He loved children, touched the sick, cared for the poor, and washed the feet of those that were below him. See, Jesus flipped the script of what it meant to be a real man in his day. So, brothers and sisters, we have got to be careful not to take our cultural beliefs about masculinity and femininity And make them into biblical prescriptions for all. And let me tell you why that's important today. Because if a person doesn't fit those stereotypes, it is causing many, many to say, I must not be my biological gender. I must be something else. I must be something else altogether. That's what's causing many to wonder that very thing. So we have got to be careful. So that's gender role. Then there's gender identity. And this is the most important part of our conversation. And gender identity is used today today to describe one's internal sense of self. It's a person's self-perception of who they are, whether they are male or female, or in today's case, both or neither. So whereas gender roles are social and cultural response to being male and female, Gender identity is one psychological response to our male and female embodiment. And there are people in our society, in our world, for whom their internal sense of self doesn't match their biological sex. 
For instance, you have a biological male who is clearly male. But there's a psychological incongruence with their male body. And when this person looks in the mirror, it feels like they're looking at someone else. Because their internal reality doesn't match their external reality. And this is what we refer to as gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the distress or the inner anguish that results from the conflict between their gender identity and biological sex. And what's important for us to get here, guys, is that this is a genuine experience for a lot of people. Gender dysphoria is real. It's real. One person describes it like this. It's the piercing to the heart feeling when you feel like every single person in the room is staring at you. Like your heart is ripped open and they're just picking at the pieces. This may sound harsh to someone who has never experienced gender dysphoria. However, for me, it happens to in some degree almost every time I'm out in public with people around me. Fighting just to leave my house and by the time I have fought for hours at a time, I'm exhausted. I feel inadequate, broken, and I just want to disappear. Now, this can range from mild to severe. For some, it comes in waves. For others, it's chronic. It's a constant experience that's utterly debilitating. I've heard stories where a person looks at their body and, and are literally driven to throw up. Because there's such an incongruence between what they see and what they feel. Now, gender dysphoria can be experienced as young as three years old. And there are stories of children as young as six who attempt suicide. Because their dysphoria is so aggressive and that is just so heartbreaking. Now, for most kids, it goes away. And this is important for us to know. According to all studies available, 61 to 88% of early onset dysphoria goes away after puberty. And this is why there's so much pushback against puberty blockers and hormone therapy being administered to children because most of their dysphoria will go away. But for some, it doesn't. It doesn't go away. Now, something else that's important for us to know is that not everyone who identifies as transgender experiences gender dysphoria. More and more people today are saying that if you say you're trans, then you're trans. And this has actually sparked a feud within the trans community with the older generation saying gender dysphoria is necessary for you to be truly trans, while the younger generation is saying self-declaration is all you need. But that's gender identity as it is understood today. Your your gender is unattached to your biological sex. And this is a starting point for understanding the trans conversation. Now, the key question we have to answer is this. If someone's gender doesn't match their biological sex, which one is true? If a person's internal sense of who they are conflicts with their male or female body, which one determines who they really are? This is the ultimate question we have to answer. And this is where we come to Scripture and see what God's Word has to say about it. And let me begin by saying that there's no specific verse in the Bible that says if your gender identity doesn't match your biological sex, this is who you really are. There is no such verse. But the Bible has a lot to say about human nature and the importance of our sex bodies, which in turn will help inform the way we answer that question. And the principles that I'm going to be sharing from here on out are from a book by Preston Sprinkle called Embodied. And I recommend you, I would encourage you to get it and read it for yourself. This is a book that is endorsed by people like John Mycomer, Sean McDowell, Scott Ray, one of my favorite professors at Talbot, the professor of ethics. These men highly endorsed this book, and so would I, embodied. But the first point I want to make is that the body is essential to who we are as image bearers. 
The body is essential to who we are as image bearers. And what we see here in Genesis 1 is the most important statement we have about human identity. And it is the truth that we are created in the image of God. Look at it again, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, theologians have questioned for centuries what it means to be made in God's image. Does it refer to our rational minds, our capacity for relationships, or something else? Well, whatever the image of God points to, one thing is clear in this passage, and it is that our bodies are essential to bearing God's image. The Hebrew word for image here is selem. And this word elsewhere in the Old Testament almost always refers to, guess what? Idols. And what is an idol? An idol is a visible representation of an invisible deity. And what we see here in Genesis 1 is that human beings are the visible representations of an invisible God, Yahweh. Now, of course, we humans aren't just our physical bodies. Genesis 2-7 says that God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living thing. Meaning God's life-giving spirit is also essential for personhood. But the word image here specifically highlights our physicality. That we bear God's image not just as humans and not just as embodied humans, but as sexed humans, as male and female. And it's important that I point out that the categories of male and female here in Genesis 1 describe biological sex, not gender identity. This is huge. And we see this in the next verse, in verse 20, where God says, be fruitful and multiply. This command to reproduce wouldn't make any sense if male and female meant psychological aspects of being male and female. What this is stating is that our biological sex is an essential part of what it means to be human and how we as human beings define ourselves. That's point number one. Here's point number two. Jesus affirms Genesis 1 and 2 as true. This is big. Jesus saw what we just looked at in Genesis 1 and 2 as normative. In his debate with the Pharisees about divorce, Jesus said in Matthew 19, 4 and 5, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What can we draw from this? What's clear is that Jesus saw God's creation of humans as normative thousands of years later. It wasn't relevant just for the beginning of creation. But as God's purpose for humanity, God's design for humanity as a whole. And he highlights the fact that marriage as God intended, listen. Marriage as God intended is a union of two people of different sexed bodies. Male and female. Now Jesus wasn't the only one who talked about the importance of our physical bodies, so did Paul. And we see an example of this in what he says to the Corinthians. Now, there were some in the Corinthian church who believed that the person's spirit is what mattered. The body, not so much. They had a high view of the immaterial, and they had a low view of the material, the body. And this is what Paul says to them, okay? In 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you, know that, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Notice that for Paul, you and your body are inextricably linked. He says what we do with our bodies isn't morally neutral, and the context here is sexual immorality. Where you as a sex body come together sexually with another sex body that is not your spouse. Paul says when you do that, you have sinned against God. Why? 
Because you can't separate the real you from the embodied you. In other words, the immaterial you is not a more real you than the embodied sexed you. And that goes against what a lot of people today are saying. That the body is just a shell. That my body is just a shell that covers the real me. That is not what the scriptures teach about human identity and human nature. It tells us that we don't just have bodies, we are bodies. Here's the fifth point I want to make. The incarnation of Christ affirms the goodness and the importance of our sex bodies. The incarnation of Christ affirms the goodness and the importance of our sex bodies. We know that when the Son of God came into the world to redeem mankind, he came in human form. Jesus took on a human form. He took on a physical body, specifically a male physical body. Now, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. He is the exact representation of God's nature, Hebrews 1.3, in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily, Colossians 2.9. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Because he is the expression, the image of God. Now listen to what Preston Sprinkle writes about this. If Jesus did not have a body, a sexed body, he would not have borne God's image. And if we want to find out what it means to be human, what it means to bear God's image, then we must look at Jesus as the ultimate expression of this. And then he says this, Jesus' sexed embodiment, the fact that he inhabited a male physical body, challenges the notion that biology is irrelevant to identity. That's good. Six and lastly, our sex bodies matter greatly to our identity as humans. Why? Because our bodies will be sexed in the resurrection. Listen, there's nothing in the Bible that says sex differences will be done away with in the resurrection. We don't become gender neutral in heaven. Did you know that? We know this because Jesus wasn't gender neutral when he resurrected. No, he remained distinctly male in resurrected form. And John says when Christ appears, that is when Jesus returns, we shall be like him. Not in the sense that we're all going to become male. No, that's not what he's saying. In the sense that our current corruptible earthly bodies are going to be transformed into incorruptible resurrected bodies just like his which paul writes extensively about in first corinthians 15 so when you look at creation resurrection and incarnation in the middle they all point to what they all point to the importance of our physical bodies to where we cannot be defined listen we cannot be defined apart from our embodied sex So purely from a biblical standpoint, church, listen to me. If we're just looking at what God's word has to say about it, biological sex is not only not just an essential part of our identity, it's inseparable. So in answering the question we asked earlier, if one's gender identity doesn't match their biological sex, Which one is true? Which one tells us who we really are? The answer lies not so much in terms of who we think we are. Our own internal sense of who we are, but who God says we are. And scripturally, our biological sex tells us who we are. Even if our internal sense of self doesn't resonate with that. And so the notion that my body is just my body, but that's not who I really am, does not reflect a biblical worldview. It doesn't. According to God's word, our bodies are the best reflection of how God sees and identifies us. Even if our minds disagree. Now in some circles... That makes perfect sense, of course. 
But in other circles, man, you take that stance and you'll be, you're going to catch some heat. You'll be called a hater. You'll be called a transphobe. Because you and I, we live in a society, we live in a culture that says what an individual wants or wills is the highest good. It is the highest good. And it's wrong to tell someone that their beliefs and choices are off. But it is in this kind of culture that we as God's people are to stand for God's truth as revealed in his word. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say this again. I've said this before. I'm going to keep saying this. Guys, our stance on issues like this will be one of the greatest tests of faithfulness in our generation. I believe that with all my heart. Our stance on the transgender issue will be one of the most important tests of faithfulness in our generation. You see, our faithfulness to Jesus is tested most in those things that our culture finds most offensive. And I pray that we as a church, as a living way, that we would be found faithful where the battle is the hottest. Now, let me mention something I believe is important before I wrap up. And it is the massive spike in teenagers questioning their gender identity today. The massive spike of teenagers identifying as trans. And this is a societal phenomenon that cannot be denied. There's been a sudden and exponential rise in young people identifying as trans. For instance, in the UK, there's been a 1,460% increase among boys and a 5,337% increase among girls identifying as trans compared to just 10 years prior. 1,500 percentage percent in boys and 5,000 percent in girls. And they have termed this rapid onset gender dysphoria. Rapid onset gender dysphoria. And here's what the researchers found to be common factors. And this is not a Christian study. This is a secular study. Few of the children showed any signs of gender dysphoria to their parents growing up. Their new identity seemed to appear out of the blue. Many, if not all, of their friends at school were trans, and they were coming out, and their coming out often followed their friends coming out as trans. Many of them became more popular after they came out as trans. And get this. They engaged in heavy online and social media activity surrounding their coming out. This is big. Not only is there less stigma about being trans today than in previous years, in many circles it's celebrated. And it's going to be celebrated online. It's celebrated in social media. where most of our teenagers spend much of their time. So there's a direct correlation between excessive internet and social media use and young people identifying as trans. Parents, moms, dads, you need to be aware of this. I I know this is a whole topic in and of itself, but excessive phone use, excessive social media use, has proven, it has shown, there's all kinds of data that has shown that it's harmful, harmful to all of us, but especially to young minds and hearts. Anxiety, depression, suicidality, and now gender dysphoria are all on the rise. And experts are connecting that rise to what our children are being influenced online. And this has led to the dramatic rise in children transitioning into their preferred gender, which our gender-affirming politicians and healthcare professionals are pushing and promoting with vigor. And I find this deeply, deeply disturbing. Biological girls are given high doses of testosterone as young as 12. 
They're having their uterus and ovaries removed at 16. The same age that some biological boys are having their penises removed. There's an ongoing push to lower the age where kids can get hormone therapy and surgery without their parents' consent. Currently in Oregon, 15-year-olds can medically transition without the consent of their parents. This is wild. Especially when you consider that our brains aren't even fully developed until around age 25. It's one thing for an adult to make such life-altering decisions. It's another thing for a child, and you cannot convince me that a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old is ready and able to make such decisions. Something else that's on the rise today is detransitioning. As the number of trans teenagers continue to rise, so also does the number of detransitioners. And detransitioners are people who ended up transitioning socially, hormonally, surgically into their preferred gender only to transition back to their biological sex. Why? Here's the number one reason why. Because the changes did not bring about the relief or the satisfaction that we're searching for. The changes that they made to their bodies did not bring about the relief or the satisfaction they were looking for. Many of them thought that their depression, their anxiety, their anguish would go away after they transitioned, only to discover that it didn't. And more and more studies are proving this to be true. I just read this. This just came out. A new Danish landmark study found that suicide rates and psychiatric conditions are significantly higher among trans-identifying people. Now, Denmark is famously progressive on this issue and rates as one of the most LGBT-friendly countries in the world, even above the U.S. But the study looked at nearly 3,800 transgender people over a period of 40 years. And what they discovered was that despite what gender-affirming activists argue, that trans people, especially trans youth, are at a higher risk of suicide if they are denied medical interventions such as puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or gender surgeries. The studies found that transgender individuals had significantly higher rates of suicide attempt, suicide mortality, and all-cause mortality compared with the rest of the non-transgender population. This is heartbreaking. This is just one study among others. Again, more and more studies like this are coming out where people who identify as transgender or struggle with gender dysphoria report disproportionately higher rates of unrest and unhappiness along with higher rates of mental health problems. And the rest of the general population. And it's important that we remember that as we look at the trans community. That these are real people. Guys, these are real people. With real challenges and real problems. And I want to close by talking about how we as Christians are to respond and relate to those in the trans community. And let me begin by saying that it is not a sin to experience gender dysphoria. It is not a sin to experience gender dysphoria. Just like experiencing same-sex attraction is not a sin. The feeling that you are not your biological sex is not a sin. That feeling is a sign that we are broken by sin. See, the fall has disordered all of our desires. Every single one of us, every single one of us in this room and within my voice, We all have disordered desires. It's what we do with our desires and experiences that can lead to sin. Now, if you are one who experiences gender dysphoria, and I'm not even going to begin to presume to know what it's like, 
And in no way do I want to minimize the pain and the suffering that someone with gender dysphoria may experience. But if you as a follower of Jesus experience gender dysphoria, I want to remind you today that your feelings, as strong as they may be, do not define you. Christ defines you. He is your definition. Jesus is the sum total of your identity. And your discipleship to Jesus, following Jesus in this, is to ultimately embrace and live out the divine image God created you to be. An image that includes our sex bodies as a core part of our identity. And transitioning, listen, transitioning would be moving us further away from who we really are, not bringing us closer to it. But some say transitioning is the only thing that will relieve a person's dysphoria. It's the only thing that's going to relieve someone of their suffering. And I get that. I understand the rationale for that. Because I want nothing more than to comfort those who are in distress. And yet, here's what I know. I know that relieving someone of their suffering is not the ultimate goal of their Christian life. Conformity to Christ then as well is. And we know from Scripture that God often uses the very things we hate, the things that we do not want in our lives to accomplish that purpose, to accomplish His purpose for our lives. So if you are one who struggles with gender dysphoria, I just want to tell you today that you are welcome here. You are so welcome here. We invite you gladly to be a part of our community, to be a part of our family. And we promise to be a safe place for you to openly talk about and discuss your struggles with gender dysphoria. And we will do our best to come around you and to meet you where you are and love you and help disciple you toward embracing and living out the image God created you to be. That is our commitment to you. Hey, church, this is not going to go away anytime soon. This issue is not going to go away. It's only going to get more prominent. And knowing that, it is my hope that we would be a church that welcomes those in this community. I hope and I pray that we would be a people who listen, like really listen and learn and befriend. Build genuine relationships with trans people. And that we at Living Way would treat them with the utmost kindness, respect, and love. Because that's what ultimately changes people. I close by reading what Preston Sprinkle writes about Alan. Alan grew up as a pastor's kid, but couldn't wait to leave the church after he graduated high school. Ever since he could remember, Alan had an unchosen desire to dress, act, and behave like a woman. He had no one to talk to, no one to guide him. And seeing the church's attitude toward LGBTQ people made him feel even more isolated and ashamed. He also grew tired of the hypocrisy in the church. Despite being a pastor's kid, I'd I'd become upset at the hypocrisy of Christians saying they were full of grace but not practicing or not putting into practice, especially concerning LGBTQ issues. After high school, Alan left the church, but he couldn't get away from Christians. One day, a Christian friend asked to hear Alan's story, so Alan told him everything. His desire to be a woman, his sexual attraction to men, his failures in trying to follow his own convictions about sexual ethics. 
Alan expected to be condemned. To his surprise, he was loved. Instead of the shaming and condemnation I expected, I was told that despite my past and present desires, God didn't hate me, and I was lovable by others and by God. These simple words pierced his soul. Alan gave his life to Christ. All because he had the courage to share his story with a friend who received him graciously. Alan said, If I had never learned about pure, unstilled grace, I would have transitioned into a female and I would have left the church. The thing that brought me into an acceptance of biblical masculinity. was not a poignantly laid out exegetical argument against transsexuality, nor a fire and brimstone diatribe about homosexuality. But a man who gave me the space to speak about my desires openly and let me know that he and God loved me. Nevertheless, Alan's profound point is worth repeating. A man who gave me the space to speak about my desires openly and let me know that he and God loved me. Nevertheless, it was love, not logic, that changed Alan's heart. People are rarely argued into the kingdom. Sprinkle concludes, as we continue to think through questions related to trans identities, Just remember, there might be a 14-year-old girl in your youth group on the verge of suicide because she doesn't feel like a girl and has no one to talk to. She was created in God's image and is beloved by Jesus. Will she be loved by you? Will she be loved by you? God, help us to love. Help us, God, to love as you loved. And God, I repent before you and before your people. God, I confess my own prejudices. My own derogatory stereotyping of those in this community. God, I confess my sin. And I ask for your forgiveness. God, I ask that you would forgive us who have done the same. And God, that you would help us. God, would you help us in this? God, would you go beyond our natural inclinations that we would truly, God, be a pure reflection of you and the grace and the mercy, the love that you have shown us when we were lost. when we were undesirable, when we didn't fit in, when we made a mess of our our lives, God, you came for us. And you met us where we were. And you loved us into the kingdom. God, help us to do the same. And God, would you cause living way to be church that truly welcomes those in not only the trans community, but in the LGBTQ community. God, that we would genuinely welcome them. And that we would genuinely seek to listen to their stories and to get to know them. 
and to build loving relationships with them so that we can give them a taste of what the kingdom of God is all about. God, would you teach us what it means to speak truth and love? God, give us the courage and the boldness to not bend, to not bow to societal pressure, and bend what you have declared to be true. At the same time, Lord, help us to be like you. Help us to be like you. And God, I pray again that Living Way would be a place that welcomes those who are broken and hurting apart from you. (sighs) Knowing that that is your desire and your heart for us in this world. In Jesus' name.